Welcome to the Burnett Breakdown, where I, Hunter Burnett, keep up with the news so that you don't have to. This week, we're going to be talking about the January 6th commission hearing, inflation, and the Kavanaugh assassination attempt. Early in the morning on Wednesday, there was a California man that was arrested for attempting to assassinate Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, The California man pulled up in a taxi in the wee hours of the morning where he saw marshals uh, that were protecting Brett Kavanaugh's house and made eye contact with the marshals and then uh, would proceed to walk down the street. Then he got cold feet where he called 911 on himself, turned himself in, saying that he was going to harm himself and that he was having um, hallucinations. This man was armed with a knife, gun, and other burglary tools to get into the house. So this was a very serious attempt that almost resulted in a huge constitutional crisis. So he, this would have been the most significant political assassination in the last you know, 60 years. Um, and in fact, would have been the first assassination of a Supreme Court justice. And this is really, uh, you know, part of a larger uh, tendency, uh, unfortunate tendency in this country towards political violence. Uh, this man was inspired, he said, by the um, dr- drafted, the leaked draft of the Dobbs opinion, that is the Supreme Court case, that, uh, and the leak of this Alito opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade. And this man was saying that he wanted to provide, give his life purpose, and he's going to do that by killing Brett Kavanaugh. So think about what this guy did. He you know, went through the plan. He planned. He traveled to uh, Washington, D.C. He found the address of Brett Kavanaugh, uh, brought weapons with him, was armed not just with a knife and gun, but had tools to get into the house. And the only thing that stopped him was seeing uh, the U.S. Marshals out in front of the uh, Brett Kavanaugh's door uh, where he proceeded to go down the street and not actually follow through. So he got cold feet, but this is was a very serious attempt. This is on the back of a bill in the House to protect Supreme Court justices, to provide more protection for them. Uh, this bill has already passed the Senate, passed it unanimously, but has not been taken up by the House yet. I think that it, this would be a very uh, appropriate time for the House to kind of urgently pass that, seeing that this tendency towards political violence in this country is only getting worse, and that this could have been a serious constitutional crisis. Uh, we are fortunate that this did not end up uh, happening, and that this man ended up turning himself in, with, and that you know Brett Kavanaugh was okay, um, but this could have been a very serious, um, and we're, we're fortunate that it wasn't as serious as it could have been. Moving on to inflation, and the Labor Department released the report on the CPI data, so that is the Consumer Price Index, on Friday, and they said that it, uh, the CPI increased 8.6% in the month of May. That is from a year ago. Um, the CPI measures what consumers pay for goods and services. That is different than the PCE, which is an index that measures what producers Uh, pay for goods and services. So this is the consumer side, and it is usually used as a gauge for inflation because it's comparing how expensive goods were compared to last year. And what we see here is, uh, as everyone has probably already 
uh, felt uh, in their pocketbooks and has already heard in the news is that inflation is continuing to be high. This is important to mention this time around, especially because last month you had a lower CPI uh, that was an indication of possibly uh, early or a peak to inflation. So it uh, was it went from 8.3% to 8.1%, which uh, was a slight decrease, and so there's some uh, optimism that maybe uh, inflation had peaked. Well, now we see that in May, the uh, CPE, CPI data actually went up. It's now 8.6% in May. So uh, it looks like inflation is not slowing down. It looks like it did not peak. To get specific about different industries, um, in energy, uh, consumers paid three or 34.6% more this t- uh, this year than this time last year. Groceries, 11.9% more. Used vehicles, 1.8% more. Shelter costs, 5.5% more. And then airline fares, 12.6% more. This is, again, huge numbers. And what this really points out is that this increase in inflation was really broad-based. So there has been reports in the past and beliefs of analysts in the past of this data that the data was kind of skewed by certain sectors being out of whack. So, for example, used cars for a while were at, you know, extra, at astronomical prices. Uh, so that was kind of you know, distorting the index, distorting the overall numbers, the headline numbers. What we're seeing here is now this is uh, largely broad-based, uh, an increase in, you know, across the economy. It is not uh, driven by one or two sectors, but really a- across all sectors we're seeing higher and higher prices. This is on uh, kind of is going to precede a Fed meeting that will take place next week where they will likely continue to increase rates um, and probably increase rates 50 basis points again, so 0.5%. Again, they did that last meeting. They raised it 50 basis points, and that was the first time they had done that since uh, 2000. And now they're going to do it again uh, this uh, coming meeting. And in fact, they're going to look to continue to do that, uh, according to some uh, reports, until at least uh, September. So it is looking like the Fed will continue to increase rates uh, in order to tamp down on inflation. And we will see how effective that is. Again, they're going to try to, you know, do this, what, what people are calling a, quote, soft landing, where they increase um, rates, uh, tamp down on demand, while not trying to cause a recession. I do not think that is very real- realistic. I think if the Fed continues to raise rates, they will almost have no choice but to send the economy into a recession. Now, it's important to t- uh, talk about what is the causes of uh, the supply uh, of the uh, inflation that we're seeing right now because a lot of it the Fed again can control some of it and then may not have a whole lot of control over other parts of it. For example, uh, the causes of of this time, of of this inflation, is still those supply chains. Those supply chains are continuing to be under pressure. They're continuing to be out of whack. Uh, Ever since COVID, where they initially were thrown out of whack, they're continuing to be. Also, you have uh, cities like Shanghai that are still under lockdown. They had been lift lockdown have been lifted, and now it looks like they're going back into lockdown because of cases in. 
in Shanghai. And so uh, with these supply chains, there's just not much the Fed can do about this. In fact, there's some uh, economists that argue if supply uh, the supply side is the issue, then the Fed needs to actually um, increase monetary supply in order to uh, incentivize investment into uh, kind of improving those supply chains. So um, if the Fed, uh, so, you know, some economists are arguing that uh, the Fed really, by, you know, raising rates and by getting rid of liquidity in the market, are actually not going to solve inflation because they're not addressing the core issue of supply chains. And I would argue that they really can't address the main issue of supply chains, um, but that's not going to prevent them from trying. Also, what you have are, uh, as a cause of this inflation is energy. Everyone has noticed that uh, gas prices are higher than they were, uh, that they have been in the last like 10 years. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, a product of all sorts of different things. Uh, if you want to listen to a podcast that I did with my friend Noah, who's in that industry uh, from a month or so ago, uh, then do that. Um, and what he was talking about is that, again, you have these oil companies not producing as much as they once did. Uh, you also have the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, which is uh, putting pressure on the energy market. And then as energy prices go up, because energy is required in producing anything or transporting anything, it will continue to uh, impact prices across the economy. And so as energy prices go up, so the prices of everything else do as well. And then finally, you have tight labor markets. Uh, we've talked about this again and again on here, but the tight labor market, meaning that workers, uh, it, uh, companies cannot find workers to work, which means that they are having to offer a ton more money in order to incentivize people to come work for them. Uh, that When they raise prices to do that, however, they are going to need to charge consumers more or they're not going to be able to make money. So uh, that is going to continue to influence and increase uh, inflation as well. This is going to be, as I have said again and again and again, this is going to be the main issue in November. It will be what voters go to the polls to vote on because this impacts every, every everyday people and their pocketbooks. They notice and they blame the government for it. So this is going to just be detrimental. It's going to wreck the Democrats in November, and the Republican Party is likely going to win a, very, uh, a, a, a multitude of seats, uh, both in the House, probably in the Senate as well, um, the midterms are going to be a bloodbath for Democrats, and this is going to be the largest reason why. And then finally, I want to talk about the January 6th committee hearing uh, from Thursday evening. So on Thursday evening in primetime, the January 6th committee held a hearing and broadcasted it across the country. Uh, remember that this hearing has six, uh, sorry, seven Democrats on it and two Republicans. And this uh, hearing was very interesting and it was broadcasted all across the country so I do want to talk about it because I do think it is worth reporting on in particular I want to point out what Liz Cheney said so I've talked about Liz Cheney before and the reason that I want to talk about what Liz Cheney said is because you've heard I'm sure the claim by many conservatives and ver and many Republicans that this uh, January 6th committee is not worth listening to. In fact, Republican politicians have criticized the committee as being a partisan witch hunt. Kevin, Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, Republican minority leader, said on Thursday, quote, that this is the most political and least legitimate committee in American history. 
Um, so that is kind of going to be what the Republicans run with. And the reason why I point out what Liz Cheney has to say is because Liz Cheney is not only a Republican, but a very conservative Republican. Uh, she is not uh, a moderate by any stretch of the imagination. She is not a moderate in how she voted and in, in how she has voted. She is almost always and has been rated one of the most conservative legislators in the House of Representatives. So it is worth, in my opinion, listening to what she in particular has to say. Now, in her opening statements, she made some interesting comments. Um, so first, she said that um, you would hear testimony that indicated Trump, Trump was repeatedly told by officials that he had lost the election. So that is a really important detail. And, and what this first hearing was all about was essentially setting the stage. It was all about setting the stage for what is to come in the next uh, six uh, hearings. So this and the last one are the only two that are going to be uh, aired in prime time, but there will be, in total, seven hearings. And she laid out what the seven hearings would find. So this one was all about the findings, and it wasn't as much about the evidence of the findings as much as it was about laying out what the findings would be. So again, the first finding that she kind of made mention to was that the that it would indicate, that testimonies would indicate that Trump was repeatedly told by officials that he had lost the election. That is important because it means that Trump cannot claim or that uh, Trump supporters cannot claim that he really and genuinely believed the election was stolen. If he did, it was in spite of what his advisors and what he was told by the leading advisors in his administration, not uh, because it was based in any sort of, um, you know, not because he was fed bad information, but it was based in a kind of alternate reality if he did in fact believe that. Also, uh, the finding that she said the committee would demonstrate and the hearings would demonstrate is that Trump did not want to do anything to stop the riots at the Capitol. In fact, she uh, made a quotation that Trump, in response to the hang Mike Pence chants that were being said and that were heard by the rioters at the Capitol, that Trump responded, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. And that maybe Mike Pence deserved it. Okay, so if that is, again, if that is true, uh, that would be uh, a hugely, hugely disgraceful comment and would say a lot about Donald Trump. Another finding that uh, Liz Cheney said that the, would come out of these hearings is that Mike Pence, not Trump, called for the military to defend the Capitol. This is a quotation from Liz Cheney. Trump placed no call to any element of the United States government to instruct that cap that the capital be defended in quote I think that if this finding proves to be true and that the evidence they have proves this to be convincing that this uh, really did happen and this seems like a bold statement and a pretty easily verifiable one this would be in my opinion, Massive. The fact that Donald Trump placed no call to any part of the United States government to protect the Capitol would be absolutely and totally a dereliction of duty. 
there is absolutely no reason and in no understanding of the Constitution would the president refusing to protect the Capitol building and congressmen in the Capitol building, that would absolutely be a dereliction of duty. And uh, in fact, if it's true that Mike Pence called for the military to defend the Capitol, that would be a destruction of our constitutional order. In no way, in no way, shape, or form is a vice president have the authority to do that. Now, I'm not saying I blame Mike Pence for doing that in such an extraordinary circumstance and in such a circumstance where the president of the United States was refusing to do that, but that is absolutely, absolutely not part of the constitutional order. The army, the military takes orders from Trump or those that Trump has appointed to give orders. He had not appointed Mike, uh, Mike Pence to give orders, and Mike Pence, uh, in spite of that, was giving order, and the government and the military and the National Guard was listening. That is a, a thwarting of the constitutional order. So a very significant, very serious allegation that would be devastating if proven true. Then Liz Cheney laid out an outline of what each of the next uh, hearings would consist of, what each one would consist of. And in the second hearing, uh, she said that the uh, committee w would show that Trump and his advisors knew he lost the election um, and but promoted lies about the election being stolen anyway. So Trump knew he lost the election but promoted lies anyway that it was stolen. In the third hearing, she said that they would talk about Trump's unsuccessful attempts to replace Justice Department officials that refused to affirm the stolen election narrative. In the fourth hearing, uh, they said that tr uh, they would show that Trump pressured Pence to refuse to count electoral votes on January 6th and all of the pressuring that he did. In the fifth hearing, she said that uh, the public would learn about Trump's pressuring of state officials and state legislatures to recall the electors they had sent to D.C. and replace them with uh, ones that said Trump won the election. And then in the sixth and the seventh uh, hearings, Liz Cheney said that, quote, Americans would hear how Trump summoned a violent mob and directed them illegally to march on the U.S. Capitol. Towards the end of the hearing, the committee uh, asked and uh, asked questions to a, a Capitol Police officer that was working the, at the um, Capitol building the day of January 6th, and then a uh, videographer that is a uh, that works on documentaries and was working on making a documentary about why America was so divided. That was in Washington D.C. and was in fact with the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys uh, that day. So uh, what we have, it, it, what we saw is that. Um, they were really pressing the question of was this coordinated? Was it a coordinated effort to infiltrate the Capitol building or was it kind of, you know, protesters getting a little too worked up and, and there was no kind of planned or coordinated uh, intention behind it? I thought that the uh, testimony was interesting. Uh, what we learned is that the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, so those are two far-right 
uh, extreme groups. Uh, the Oath Keepers are kind of anti-government, um, militia type, and Proud Boys are kind of a white nationalist group. Uh, we learned that they marched to the Capitol before Trump's speech. Okay, so they were not uh, influenced by Trump's speech to go to the Capitol building. Uh, they were not there for Trump's speech and then motivated and went to the Capitol and got too carried away. They were, uh, they had coordinated uh, through some testimony that they gave and some video of the night before that they had coordinated this effort to uh, infiltrate the Capitol, or at least that's what it would appear. Also, they walked th- around the Capitol building uh, and there's some, uh, you know, kind of, uh, alleging or at least speculation that they did this in order to determine the security measures that were put in place and where potential weaknesses would be in the perimeter. And they broke through the per- capital perimeter at the point that the Trump supporters would arrive after the speech. So they deliberately and uh, uh, allegedly coordinated uh, to... Uh, break through at that point. So again, this was a uh, this seems to be a coordinated attack. Now the question becomes, was it a coordinated attack just amongst the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and kind of some fringe types like that or was there some more coordination involved? Likely or like something with the administration was there coordination with the administration involved. There that that was not at all in the slightest bit proven this uh, Thursday night. So I want to be clear about that. That no coordination between the administration and the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys was proven. That doesn't mean it won't be proven, but it was not proven Thursday night. I just want to make mention that those testimonies occurred and that there was, you know, some speculation or at least some uh, assumptions made that there was coordination, at least uh, there seems to be coordination between the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, that they were intentional about wanting to infiltrate the Capitol. They were not protesters that just got carried away with the crowd. That doesn't mean that those weren't around. That I'm sure there were many Trump supporters that just got carried away. But the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the leaders of those groups were not that. They were uh, they had coordinated this. Um, they premeditated this before the actual uh, breaking into the Capitol. Which brings me to my final point about the January 6th commission, and that is we should, I think, pay attention to what the January 6th commission comes up with. Uh, You can say, and people are saying, that this is a partisan witch hunt, right? I read McCarthy's statement earlier that said this is a partisan witch hunt. It may be a partisan witch hunt. It may be, uh, in fact, I have some real disagreements about the way that it was handled by both Nancy Pelosi and by the Republican Party in the House. I think that Nancy Pelosi, with the articles of impeachment, absolutely should have brought uh, Republicans into the fray and said, what is an impeach an article of impeachment that you can vote for? Let's not put this extremist language, this radical language in here. What is one that you can vote for so we can move swiftly on impeachment? I thought she handled that poorly and terribly, actually. But at the same time, McCarthy, from the very beginning, has portrayed the January 6th committee as a partisan uh, event, as this thing that Democrats are doing and that rhino Republicans are doing, and that it is because of that, and then they're making the argument. And this is what bothers me, is that you refuse to participate, you refuse to have your um, party and members of your party participate in this committee, but then you say that there's no adversary arguing against what the committee is finding 
as our system calls for. So our system usually has a, a prosecutor that presses the case and prosecutes the case and then a defense. And so the claim by Republican leadership right now is that there's no defense. And because there's no defense, that this is invalid. But there's no defense because you refuse to participate. So you don't get to claim that there's no adversarial position when you refuse to participate. So regardless, of, but even past all that, regardless that if it is a partisan witch hunt or not, it is important that we evaluate whether we think the evidence that is going to be presented by the committee is it proves the case or not, right? It doesn't matter. We are people of reason. It doesn't matter if a if a person that we disagree with says it, if it still is proven to be true, right? Even people we disagree with can say true things. So even if Democrats or liberals or the most progressive people on the planet have good, solid evidence that is, you know, valid evidence, then we should take that into consideration and we shouldn't just flippantly ignore it because we don't like the people doing it. Because we don't like Liz Cheney or we don't like the progressives. So this, I think, is worth paying attention to. It may come, you know, we may watch these seven hearings, these next six hearings, and say that they are drawing radical conclusions and assumptions from this evidence. This evidence does not, in any way, shape, or form, prove the case that, and the claims that they are making. We may come to the end of that and come, may come to the end of this and say that very thing. But we cannot say that it is invalid before we listen to and read and uh, evaluate and think about the evidence that they are portraying. So it is vital, 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 vital that we listen to the evidence because this is a huge deal. How coordinated this was is a massive deal. Okay, the fact that this was an attack on the Capitol, on the democratic institution of the United States, uh, the fact that this was an attack on the peaceful transfer of power matters. And you can be sick of talking about it, and you can say that you'd rather talk about inflation. You can even say that voters are going to care more about inflation in November. And you know what? They very well will. And you can talk about how terrible the Biden administration is doing. And you know what? I probably will too. But guess what? This matters too. We can, we can say both. We can say that this is an important commission. This is important to find out what happened on January 6th and that Biden is and has been doing a terrible job. Okay, We can say both of those, um, but it is vital that we listen to the evidence that this commission and these hearings uh, provide to the public and think about it and draw conclusions from them. And now it is time for the breakdown of The Breakdown, where I talk about my newsletter, The Burnett Breakdown, that you can subscribe to and read on Substack.com. And this week, I talked all about Pride Month. So you may have noticed, uh, everything is now rainbow. Company logos and commercials on TV and people's bios and everything is rainbow, rainbow, rainbow. And that is because it is Pride Month, a celebration of uh, members of the LGBT community. And uh, I, in my newsletter, talked about how Christians, in the midst of Pride Month, can continue to glorify God. And uh, I was really kind of, you know, what brought this up to me is the story that I end the newsletter with of these Tampa Bay Rays baseball players refusing to wear the rainbow patch that celebrated Pride while they played uh, their baseball game. 
So if you did not hear about the story, what happened is that as most sports teams are doing now in sports leagues, is the Tampa Bay Rays were going to wear rainbow-colored hats and rainbow-colored patches on their uniforms, again, to celebrate LGBT. And um, there were a handful, I think it was five players total, that refused to wear the patch. In fact, they had the option, the team gave them the option, and they did not want to wear it. And um, I really want, loved the statement that one of the players, Jason Adam, put out explaining why they did what they did. And in in his quotation, in his statement, he, he said, quote, a lot of it comes down to faith, to like a faith-based decision. So it's a hard decision because ultimately we all said what we want is them to know that all are welcome and loved here. But when we put it on our bodies, I think a lot of guys decided that it's just a lifestyle that maybe, not that they, they, that they look down on anybody or think differently, it's just that maybe we don't want to encourage it if we believe in Jesus, who's encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior. Just like Jesus encourages me as a heterosexual male to abstain from sex outside of the confines of marriage. It's no different. And I thought this statement was a perfect example of what it means for Christians in the midst of Pride Month to continue to glorify God. So I talk about that, you know, in the statement we see, first of all, that, you know, there's, it doesn't mean accept, okay? It's a, love, it's a loving statement, but it doesn't mean to accept that homosexuality is okay, because I think the Bible is clear that it isn't okay, and that we shouldn't accept it, and that love doesn't mean just accepting, that God in salvation didn't accept us for who we are, uh, but loved us in spite of who we are, and then transformed us to make us more like him, and more righteous, uh, and made us alive in a new creation, and because of that, because he has done that, we are then called to act out that love in a specific way. So I talk about how to love. Um, so we're called to love, and it, that doesn't mean accept, but also we're called to love in a particular way, and that is in a way that is patient and kind and is not envious or boastful, is not arrogant or rude, and isn't resentful, and, 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 and that is from 1 Corinthians 13. And, it, you know, we shouldn't say, speak truth in such a way that it provokes people or that it stirs a reaction from people or that it hurts people's feelings. We're called to uh, speak truth, but to speak truth in the kindest, most uh, gracious way that we can. And I think Adam uh, and his statement is a good example of doing that. He did not accept uh, that homosexuality was okay. He did not want to promote it, but he was gracious in how he uh, disapproved of it. I also talked about some practical examples and what that would look like. I said, don't be a jerk. Um, don't be surprised when sinful people do sinful things. And then finally, as Christians, we ought not be afraid of uh, Pride Month and these conversations and being bold uh, for our faith and speaking the truth. And with that, that is the podcast this week. Please like, subscribe, share, do whatever you can to make this podcast go far and wide. And I hope that you will return again next week.